Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, I have preached here before. It's been a while, a few years, I think. Uh, I don't think I could tell you exactly how long, but I'm excited to be back here with you. Uh, would you turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 12? And we'll be looking at verses 13 to 21 this morning. And as you're turning there, um, I'm actually the um, pretty much the primary Sunday school teacher at our church. And uh, one morning we were talking about trust and trusting God, and I posed the question to the, the Sunday school class, what are you actively trusting God for? And they kind of sat there for a while and they thought about it. Okay, well, you know, my, my son is, is taking a long trip, you know, to wherever, uh, Scotland, you know, and I'm trusting God to protect him on that trip. And I said, oh, well, if he doesn't make it there safely, will you quit trusting God? Well, no, I guess not. Okay, so what are you trusting God for there? Well, I'm trusting, you know, His provision. I'm trusting that He works all things out for good. Okay, uh, that's good. I would consider that more passive trust, though. You know, we're sitting back and we're allowing God to do the things that He does. What are you actively trusting God for? What are you stepping out and trusting God for? What are you laying on the line and trusting God for? And man, it got quiet. And everybody thought for a real long time. And finally, Pastor was sitting over there and he just said, not much, it looks like. Not much. Nobody could really think of a whole lot that they were actively trusting God for, that they were stepping out for, that they were laying on the line and trusting God for. Look with me in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Jesus is, is teaching... And someone in the crowd said to him in verse 13, Teacher, tell my brother to invite, divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Then he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich Lord God. Let's begin our time in prayer. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you in your wisdom and your sovereignty uh, for having these things put down on paper so that we can read them and you can take the Spirit and, and cut to our hearts with the truth. Lord, uh, I pray uh, that you would uh, really impress upon us this morning the need to trust you with what we have. The need to push aside covetousness and, Lord, lay up treasures in heaven. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this morning we're just going to go through this passage piece by piece. And we're, we're going to work to understand what Jesus is trying to communicate. And at the end, I promise you, I will give you four clear points to take home with you. 
Um, this is such a perfect one-off sermon passage, because although it comes in the middle of a much larger discourse that Jesus is giving here, it's actually kind of something of a parenthesis in his larger argument. Uh, it's almost as though there's a break or a pause in Jesus' teaching, and then somewhere back in the crowd, someone shouts out, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, you know? I kind of imagine it like a heckler at a comedy show. I don't know if that's the right way to think of it, but that's just the vision I have in my mind. You know, there's a man on stage that everybody's come to hear, and there's always that one guy a few rows back that decides that the show needs to be about him now, right? And so he's shouting at the comic. And the man's shouts isn't a question or an insult or anything like that. It's actually a demand. He's making a demand of Jesus right now. He's come here not to hear the preaching or the teaching of the Son of God, but rather to try to use Jesus' authority to try to solve a personal issue. Worse, really, he's just trying to use Jesus to get more money, to get more stuff. In the ancient Jewish world, the older son received a double portion of the father's inheritance. For instance, if a man had two sons, his inheritance, instead of being split in half, would be divided into three portions, and the older son would get two-thirds of the inheritance, and the younger son would get one-third. And although we're not given uh, any particular details about the man who makes this demand to Jesus, um, the most likely scenario is that this man is asking Jesus to force his older brother to share a part of his larger portion of the inheritance with him. Why or for what reason, we're not told. But Jesus actually gives him a rather indignant response. In verse 14, he said to him, Man, who has made me a judge or arbiter over you? It's kind of curious. Jesus is king, master over all. He's the one who will sit in judgment on the last day over every man and woman. He's the one who cares about even the small things of our lives. Why would he respond in this way? The one who is the ultimate judge over all, saying, who has made me judge over you? Well, I think the answer is actually pretty simple. First, there are appointed authorities that God has set over this man to deal with these types of things. And Jesus is not one of them. The man making this request can ask his brother, appeal to his father, even take the matter to the courts if necessary. These are everyday matters that can be resolved by God's appointed and established beings. He can solve these issues in other ways. The second reason is that this is just not what Jesus came to do. This is not what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to solve every petty dispute between brothers. He didn't come to overhaul the justice system. He came to testify to the truth. He came to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus also came to instruct. And so he turns back to the crowd and using this man's demand and the sinful attitude behind it as a launching point, he begins to preach using a parable. We're used to hearing a story and then after the story is over, we're given a moral to take away with it. But Jesus actually gives us uh, the lesson that we ought to take away at the beginning. And he doesn't mince words. He doesn't try to save anyone's feelings. He says, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Parables are a curious way to teach. And we often wonder why Jesus chose to teach using parables. 
Couldn't he just tell his hearers exactly what he means? Couldn't he have been more direct or forthcoming with his preaching? And the answer to both of those questions is probably yes. He could have. He could have been much more direct. He could have just explicitly spelled out what he wanted to say. But he chose not to. Largely, he chose to teach by these parables. He tells these little stories. And sometimes he explains exactly what they mean and how they apply to us. And sometimes he doesn't. Why? I think part of our confusion surrounding parables comes from the fact that we misunderstand what a parable is meant to do. The parables of Jesus are not meant to confuse or to obfuscate. Rather, they are to subvert expectations. I've heard lots of people over the years describe parables as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Although it's not entirely untrue, it doesn't get to the heart of what a parable really is. My favorite description of parables is that they are little explosive devices. They're bombs. And what they're meant to do is to blow up a worldview. The people that are listening to Jesus have a set frame of mind about how the world works. What's good and what's right. Ideas about God and morality and how they ought to live in this world. And when Jesus turns to them and starts speaking in parables, usually what He's doing is showing them how horribly wrong they are. How messed up their worldview is. How immoral their everyday practices has become. Take, for instance, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I won't take you there this morning. Um, But everyone listening to the story of the Good Samaritan has a set of morals that are cast in concrete. They believe that racial divisions like those between Jews and Samaritans bar them from having to extend mercy and compassion to one another. Of course, they'll be kind to their fellow Jews, but a Samaritan or a sinner or a Gentile, those people, in their minds, aren't worthy of compassion. They don't need to extend the love of God to those people. So in order to break them out of their incorrect worldview, Jesus tells them the parable of the Good Samaritan. They would expect the priest or the Levite to show kindness. And they would expect the Samaritan to walk on by. But the parable subverts their expectations. It blows up their worldview. The priest and the Levite walk right on by as though the man wasn't even there. And it's the Samaritan the man that the crowd would hate and despise, that comes and shows compassion, that truly loves his neighbor. And it shows the crowd that your neighbor isn't just the one who looks like you or acts like you or is a member of your tribe or your people group or your nation. It's anyone in your path that's in need, that you can show the love of Christ to. So with this knowledge in mind, getting a grip on what a parable is, what's the worldview that Jesus is trying to blow up with the parable of the rich fool? The first thought would be to assume that the crowd really doesn't know about covetousness, but really, even if they couldn't read and write, they would all be familiar with the Tenth Commandment, which tells them that they should not covet anything that is their neighbor's. They know covetousness is a sin. I don't think this is shocking to them. 
think it's what Jesus says next uh, that really shows us what Jesus is trying to get at with this parable. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Covetousness can sneak up on you. You can think you're following Jesus and doing service for God when in reality your heart is very far from Him. You might be going to church every Sunday, showing up for Sunday school and prayer meetings, doing all sorts of service in the church, and yet have your heart firmly set on the things of this world. The man who shouts his demand at Jesus in the midst of a sermon is following Jesus, right? He has followed Jesus this far. He's listening to Him teach and preach. He's near to Jesus. He's near to God physically. But in his heart, he doesn't want Jesus. He just wants to use Jesus to get more stuff. Why? Because he thinks that life consists in the abundance of earthly possessions. He thinks if he could just get his brother to share his inheritance with him, his problems would be solved. Maybe it's really not all that much. Maybe he's thinking, you know, it's not that big of a deal, but it would just help me get a little bit closer to my goal. It would just make my life just a little bit more easier, right? And we Christians, followers of Christ, we like to sing songs like, All I have is Christ, and you can have the world, but give me Jesus. And we're prone to the exact same type of thinking. If I could just get a better job, if I could just get that promotion, a bigger house, a nicer car, if the government would just forgive my student loans, if I could just get a little bit more, if I could just have a little bit more, I could just be a little bit more comfortable, then my problems would be solved. While we sing songs of utter and complete devotion to God on Sunday mornings, we turn right around during the rest of the week and look to money and stuff to give our life meaning and purpose. So many of us are just like the rich fool. We think that life consists in the abundance of possessions. No matter what we say, no matter what we sing, no matter how many times we read our Bible or come to church, we can still fall into the same trap of covetousness. Loving things. Loving money. Loving stuff. Let's see how it plays out in a parable. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So we've got a man who's a farmer. And farming is a bit of a volatile trade. Uh, yields can vary greatly from one year to the next. Take it from me, I live on a farm in Iowa. I know everything about farming. I'm just kidding. I, I worked on a farm for a little while. I know very little about farming, but I see it enough. Uh, modern farming practices have helped to alleviate uh, this volatility quite a bit. But in the ancient world, you could have a massive crop one year and absolutely nothing the next. 
So preparing for the future was essential. And what seems to have happened is that this man, who's described as a rich man, probably has lots of land and livestock, he's had an exceptionally good year. And he's got all of this grain, which can last him either for the rest of his lifetime or, or for a very long time. So he decides he's going to tear down his old barns and build new ones to accommodate all this extra grain. And seeing that he now has financial security, he thinks, well, my life is perfectly in order. I don't need anything else. Eat, drink, and be merry. Before I go on to the rest of the parable, I want to make sure to clarify a couple of things so we don't get the wrong idea about what's going on here. First of all, being rich is not a vice. Being rich is not a vice. Notice that the man in the parable is described just as a rich man. He's not an evil rich man or a wicked rich man. There's no talk of ill-gotten gain, being a harsh or unfair master. He's just a rich man. The amount of money that you possess has absolutely no correlation with your spiritual state. There are a whole host of rich men in the Bible who were faithful men of God. Job, Abraham, Joseph, David. Those are all men that God chose to bless on this earth with great riches. And each one, though they had their faults, had deep and enduring relationships with God. Money, land, livestock, those things were no hindrance. The second thing I want to point out is that saving money for the future is also not a sin. That is not a bad thing to do. Um, I had a, a professor in college who actually told our class that anyone who's not living paycheck to paycheck is not trusting God to provide for them. And this is not an idea that's unique to him. This is a, a persistent idea in Christianity. And there was a whole generation of pastors and missionaries who decided not to save for retirement. Because to do so would not be trusting God. And then they came back and many of them were absolutely destitute, having nothing. Nowadays, if you go to the mission field, almost every missionary agency will require you to put money away for retirement. Why? Because saving for retirement isn't a lack of trust in God. It's just common sense. To understand this concept better, it's important to know the difference between trusting God and testing God. We'll talk about trusting God a little bit later. But testing God is putting yourself in a position where God must act on your behalf in order to save you from the bad decisions that you've made. That's testing God. Look with me in Luke chapter 4, just a few pages back. Luke chapter 4. This is the temptation of Jesus. The devil has come. Jesus has been fasting. He's weak. He's tired. And the devil has come to tempt him. And look with me in verse 9 of Luke chapter 4. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus is not telling the devil not to put God to the test. 
He is doing that, and he shouldn't do that, but that's not what Jesus' response is about. He's explaining that doing something so foolish as to throw yourself off of the Temple Mount and expect, expecting God to bail you out of that very foolish decision is testing God. And he has no intention of doing that. Jesus is not going to put the Father to the test just to prove a point. Joseph trusted God and he prepared Egypt for the famine, right? It's okay to prepare for the future. Those things are not sinful. It's not okay to put God to the test with your poor decision making. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, it says, the one who is unwilling to work should not eat. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 4, the sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will not seek at harvest. Excuse me, he will seek at harvest and find nothing. All of this is to say that the sin of the rich man is not having money or land or grain. It's not building bigger barns. It's not saving for the future. So what does the rich man do wrong so that he would be referred to as a fool? Well, we find that in verse 19. I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The rich man is a fool because he has done everything he can to set himself up for ease and comfort in this life without giving a single thought to the next. He was so concerned with getting what he wanted here and now that he forgot that all flesh is like grass that withers and fades. And that his life is but a vapor that appears for a while and then vanishes. And that what is left after this brief earthly trek is over is an eternal soul that is either with God or not with God forever. The man who asked Jesus to tell his brother to share his inheritance, and presumably the rich fool as well, share an important thing in common. Right? They have a close proximity to God and His truth. And they are both choosing earthly riches instead of God. The rich man is presumably a Jew. He has access to the temple and to the Word of God in the synagogues. He has every opportunity to pursue the things of God and declines to do so. The man who started this whole thing by attempting to get Jesus to force him to share his brother's inheritance is speaking to God in the flesh. He's talking to God. He's talking to Jesus. He's right there hearing the words of God spoken to him. And instead of pursuing Jesus, instead of loving Him and His truth, Instead of seeing Jesus as the ultimate solution in life, he comes asking for help to get more money. This trend continues in so-called churches all across the world today. Men and women flock to preachers with their Bibles in hands, and instead of being told the truth of the Gospel, instead of being told how to serve God and love God and cherish God and obey God, they are being told how they can manipulate God in order to get more stuff. 
There is a massive, multi-billion dollar industry that is built upon covetousness masquerading as Christianity. And people have been flocking to these churches, trying to manipulate God in some way in order to force Him to give you that promotion, or that new house, or that new car. And one day these people will have their souls required of that. And they will find themselves face to face with the Almighty and discover that they laid up treasures on earth where moth and rot and rust destroy. And they have absolutely nothing laid up for them in heaven. So what do we do? How do we keep from becoming like the rich fool? If we discover that we are acting like the rich fool, how do we stop? And start going in the other direction. Well, here's where my four clear points come in. The first one is hold on loosely. Hold on loosely. I love that phrase. Not just because it's a song by 38 Special. Um, But I think it's just the correct attitude that the Christian needs to take. God has given us good things. It's okay to have good things and to be blessed of God. But hold on loosely. I don't think there's a better example of this mindset than Job. Would you turn back with me to Job chapter 1? Job chapter 1, verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughter were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and fell upon the young people. And they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. This is Job losing everything he has in a moment. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, And naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job had everything and lost it in a single moment. What was his response? The Lord gave me these things. And the Lord has taken them away. Job worshipped God. He said, Blessed 
be the name of the Lord. He understood something that so few of us really understand today. He understood that He owned nothing. He owned nothing. Nothing He possessed was really His. Everything was on loan from the Almighty. And when it was gone, in a moment, He looked to the Creator and blessed His name. And He sang praises. Because despite His current situation, He knew that God is still good, and still gracious, and still loving, and perfect, and holy, and worthy of praise. He is still everything that He was before, when Job had everything. How many of us would respond the same way? How many of us do respond the same way when we face even a minor setback? Hold on loosely. Job had much from God. He was rich. And he accepted it as a blessing from God. But he held on loosely. His life didn't consist in his money or his land or his livestock or even his family. His life was found in God. So when all of those other things were gone, he could still find satisfaction. He could still find happiness and joy in God. Has God blessed you with money and earthly possessions? Has He allowed you to store up earthly things for the future to provide security later in life? Praise God. Praise God for it all. He blesses His children with good things. Hold on loosely. In an instant, in a myriad of different ways, all of those things can be gone. They can be taken from you. And if they are, it will be a perfect time to discover whether or not your life was a life of covetousness that found its meaning in riches or if it was a life that was found in Christ. Number two. Trust in God's provision. Trust in God's provision. Earlier we spoke about testing God, trying to put God in a position where He must act on your behalf, often because of some rash or or foolish choices that you have made. But in contrast to testing God is trusting God. What's the difference? Trusting God is taking God at His word. God has made promises to His people. It's not only reasonable, it's imperative that we trust God to do the things that He has said He is going to do. We read this earlier for our Scripture reading. Would you look with me in Luke chapter 12 and verse 22? And He said to His disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small as thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today 
and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will He clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows you need them. Instead, instead, in place of those things, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. God promises to provide for His people. It may not be in the timing or the manner that you expect, It certainly doesn't happen while you sit around doing nothing, expecting things to fall out of the sky. But Jesus is so confident in the provision of the Father for His children that He tells them not to be anxious and worry about the very things that we often feel that we need to be anxious and worry about. If you are obedient and diligent and not slothful, God will provide for you. You don't have to put every thought and every comfort of your life into storing up things on this earth to provide security. You can trust that God will provide. Trust in God. Number three. The third thing I think we can do to keep ourselves from being like the rich fool is be thankful to God. Be thankful to God. One of the most glaring omissions from the life of the rich fool was his lack of thankfulness. Nowhere does he show gratitude or appreciation to God for the things that he's been given. I won't take you there, but in Ephesians, Paul urges his readers to walk not as unwise, but as wise. And one of the primary examples that he offers up as walking in wisdom is giving Thanks. That's what wise people do. They give thanks always for everything in the name of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Live a life of gratitude. Do you have a lot? You have a lot to be grateful for. Do you have a little? You have every bit as much to be grateful for. Be grateful to God for what He has given you. Number four. Store up treasures in heaven. Store up treasures in heaven. I've heard a lot of preachers talk about storing up or laying up treasures in heaven. I've heard so few actually explain what it actually is or what it looks like. What does it mean to store up treasures in heaven? And how do we go about doing it? Well, first, and I think most obviously, is if Christ is not your ultimate treasure in life, he is not the thing that you love above all of the things, then there's really no way for you to store up treasures in heaven. So first, you must be given a new heart. You must trust in God and trust in Christ and His sacrifice. You must repent of your sins and trust in Christ who died for your sins and rose from the grave. That's, that's step number one, being found in Christ. 
But now for, for Christians, what do we do? How, how do we lay up these treasures in heaven? Turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, and we'll begin in verse 40. Whoever receives you, receives me. Whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple. Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Storing up treasures in heaven is about taking the things that God has blessed you with here and then turning around and using them in his service. That's storing up treasures in heaven. Do you have a a large house where a lot of people could be comfortable? Use it in the service of God. Use it for His glory. Do you have money? Has God blessed you with money? Put it on the line and trust God with it and use it for Him, for His service, for His glory. Do you have talents or gifts? Use them for the glory of God. Use them in His service. Do you have a cup of cold water? Take it and use it for His service, for His glory. And that's how you store up treasures in heaven. The rich fool said to his soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. He gave not a single thought to the next life. Think about what's coming. Think about your eternity in heaven. Think about how fleeting this time is here. And then think about what God is giving you. How can you use it in His service and for His glory. The rich fool thought that he had found life in his possessions. And all of a sudden, his life was gone. And whose were his possessions? Who knows? Despite being rich in this world, he had nothing in the next. Don't be like the rich fool. Accept the good things from God as a blessing from Him. But hold on loosely. Trust Him that He will provide for you. And then take the things that God has given you and use them in His service and for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for the wonderful, good things that You give Your people. Lord, earthly things are not inherently evil. And we thank You when You provide them for us. But Lord... I pray that we would not look to those things as so many do on this earth as our life, as our treasure, as our ultimate end or our purpose. Lord, I pray that we would try to find those things in You, find satisfaction in You, and then we can turn around and use all of the good things You've given us
and use them for your service and for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.